Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, no matter who you are or where you live, you've heard about the death of basketball superstar Kobe Bryant. We're joined by Scott Radley from the Hamilton Spectator and uh, also Kate Delaney to talk about the life and times of Kobe Bryant. Well, after the police unveiled their budget to Hamilton City Council last week, Councillor Brad Clark called them out and was quite unhappy that there was very little, as a matter of fact, no talk about gun violence in the city. And what would it take for you to leave your car at home and take public transit? Well, a study between McMaster University and the HSR has some rather interesting results. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, uh, the uh, death of Kobe Bryant yesterday in a helicopter crash at age 41. Among those who perished uh, on that flight were also his daughter and a number of other uh, sports facilities, coaches actually, a couple of different coaches uh, that uh, were well known in the Southern California area. Uh, it's caught everybody certainly off guard, uh, including a number of people, of course, that have been affiliated with uh, Kobe Bryant, including the Los Angeles Lakers. Their head coach, Del Harris, uh, had this reaction. His work ethic uh, sets a standard uh, it, it did for his teammates. Many, many uh, people jumping on board and on Twitter, uh, including Tiger Woods and so many other people, uh, former President Barack Obama and uh, and many others uh, with their tributes. Uh, joining us to talk about this, we're going to take a couple of different angles on this. Uh, first up, I want to get Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and of course, uh, columnist for the Hamilton Spectator uh, in on this. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you joining us today. No problem, Bill. You get a situation like this where there's a high-profile individual, a, a superstar athlete, uh, somebody who's larger than life, and and all of a sudden, a sudden death like this. It uh, it kind of reminds us of our own humanity and, and, and our mortality, I guess, doesn't it? Uh, I suppose, in a sense, uh, yeah. Because any you know anybody, everybody's going to die. I, I've said this before. It's one of the most underreported stories in Hamilton that the city has a one hundred percent mortality rate. Um, we all die eventually. It's just a question of when that's going to happen. Uh, the other part of it, though, Bill, is that it's a it really is a story that tells about the overwhelming power of celebrity, especially if you're a big celebrity. And as soon as I heard this, uh, I thought, actually, the first one I thought was Diana, similar story to Princess Diana and JFK Jr. I remember being on TV when his plane went down, or Roy Halladay, and these stories just a couple of weeks ago, different circumstance, but was Neil Peart that we didn't know that he was ill, the drummer for Rush, and mm-hmm. suddenly we hear. When you are a huge celebrity, it's remarkable the outpouring and the um, the connection that people feel to you, appropriately or otherwise, that that lead to a, a an outpouring that we're not going to see the same emotional response, the same connection, the same reaction to the other eight people on that helicopter. But Kobe Bryant, because he had a connection through basketball, through the TV, through whatever, that p- people feel a real loss when he's gone. Well, and especially in light of his story. I mean, you know, you talk about the celebrity aspect, certainly, but there's the athleticism of, of, of this individual as well. Uh, and he was he was a legend. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. You know, drafted right out of high school. Uh, the Lakers making a deal with with Charlotte at the time to get his rights because they figured this is where he's got to play in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, the success that he had as a professional athlete was, was, was well, legendary, really. Uh, yes. I mean, one of the um, top 15 players all time, you can debate. There are, there are people. I mean, look, Bill, here, when I say about celebrity, it's one of the really interesting things about what's happening here is that when a celebrity passes away, 
invariably the level of them rises massively. And I mean, this is a terribly, terribly sad story. But there are people on Twitter today saying the NBA should change its logo to be an outline of Kobe Bryant and the the championship trophy should be named after him and the all-star game should be named after him and his number, both of them, should be retired across the league. You know, again, a, a wonderful player, an amazing athlete, a guy who had a huge impact on the NBA. But these kinds of tragedies inspire probably out of proportion uh, responses, which is which uh, I don't really understand, but I accept now because, as I say, we've seen this many, many, many times over the years. Go back to Elvis. Go back to Marilyn Monroe. I mean, this is just what happens, and it speaks, again, not just to the power of celebrity, but to sports and entertainment. When people say, why do you pay attention to sports? You can see the connection that these games and these athletes have with the fans who watch them. It may be completely inexplicable, but it's absolutely real. Well, we tend to deify them, don't we? Uh, yeah, you know, they become absolutely. they become not just our heroes, but our superheroes, almost godlike in some people's minds. And 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 when that happens, and and it's happening with this, and because I want to talk about this, because a lot of uh, media people don't seem to want to touch on this, uh, you you tend to forget about his humanity. Uh, and his faults, uh, I, the, you yeah. know, we talk about the skyrocketing career, et cetera, but it, I mean, this is a guy that was charged with sexual assault in 2003 and marital infidelity. I mean, this was, that was the story that, that particular summer. And I read a couple things and heard a couple things in the weekend of people saying it is inappropriate to bring that up at this time, to mention that when he's just died. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not so sure that that's the case. That is part, Kobe Bryant has a complicated story. And again, it's a very simple story in the 24 hours right afterwards. We simplify things, we whittle things down, but he has a complicated story. And that is part of the complication that, especially in 2020, in the Me Too era, when Harvey Weinstein down in LA is going through a trial right now, that this other person, that is in the past and in some people's minds, we shouldn't even address that. That should be left alone because he's a father. We can't ignore the fact that he's a father, and that's true. But he settled with this woman who uh, accused him of rape, who uh, she decided not to testify at the trial, so the charges were dropped. Is that something that we that should be left out of his story completely, Bill? I, I'm... I would say no. Well, I, mean, I would it, argue no. We we had that same discussion when Michael Jackson died uh, quite suddenly course. some years ago, and uh, and every and you know the candlelight vigils and the discussion about his genius, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is all true. Yeah, uh, but very few people wanted to, to to delve into the Neverland Ranch and the sorts of things that probably went on there, and the number of lawsuits that were settled out of court about about his sexual activity. I I'm. I am someone who generally follows the old axiom that you should not speak ill of the dead. And, I'm, and I don't think we're speaking ill of the dead. I think we're speaking honestly of the man. And look, every story that has been written about him has not started with this part of his background. His story is that he was a great basketball player who uh, many, many people thought wonderful things about and, and loved and all the rest. And that's all completely fair but like every other person and here's where the here's where the celebrity part gets so interesting and so confusing like every other person you refer to them being godlike they're not they are human and they do things wrong sometimes and they do a lot of things right but when we drop or 
in time, too, Bill. I mean, I don't think we have to start the story of his passing with that, but in time, it's a part of his story, and it's a part that you can't leave out, because if you leave it out, um, you're first of all, you are creating a false narrative. You're creating this false sense that he is more than a human being, which is not true, even though he was great at what he did. Uh, you know, I, look, it's, it's one of those stories that is so terribly sad that it feels awkward at times to be mentioning these other things. But, uh, you know, ultimately, if you are going to be in the public eye and if you're going to generate the kind of response that his death has generated, it comes with transparency for him, unfortunately, in that, in that way. That, that's just reality. And, and we've seen this happen too many times, and you've, you've touched on some of the, because I've seen some of the same things too, Scott, that, you know, let's do this, let's honor this, let's name this after him now. Uh, when JFK was assassinated, the same sort of thing happened, and I'm talking about worldwide. You know, uh, Kennedy Airport was, re, well, it was LaGuardia, it was renamed to Kennedy Airport, it was Cape Kennedy instead of Cape Canaveral. Uh, you know, streets, buildings were named after JFK because of the grief that people were feeling at the time. But if you notice, with time, as we found out more about his uh, sexual escapades and some of the things that went on in the White House, uh, a lot of that stuff went away. You know, Cape Canaveral's Cape Canaveral again, not Cape Kennedy, and, and, and on and on it goes with some of those other things. In other words, if you're going to take the, the good and the great of, of the Kobe Bryants and, and the Michael Jacksons and others, you got to take the bad, too. We are, Bill, we are all people who have done things wrong. We all have. Every one of us has done things we wish we couldn't do, including our beloved celebrities who are not absolutely perfect. And, you know, we don't, when the day you pass away, hopefully, Bill, 50 to 70 years from now, but in that, when that day comes, we're not going to point out Bill Kelly, who once upon a time, and there's nothing bad that I know of, but, I mean, just little faults. We're not going to do that. It's, it, there are stories that are highly publicized, there are stories that aren't highly publicized. It's improper, I think, to ignore the stuff that everybody knows is out there, to create a narrative that tells a story of someone who was perfect. And look, Kobe Bryant as a basketball player was a, was a remarkable athlete, a remarkable player. Again, you go back and you, you look at this outpouring and you see the connection, you see the impact that he had. That's real. Bill, there are people are standing outside the Staples Center yesterday bringing flowers, not because I don't think they wanted to get on TV. It's because it, they truly felt something deep and real, just like they did when they brought flowers to Kensington Palace when Diana died. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it is, they feel it. it is a real thing, which speaks to the connection athletes and artists and celebrities can have. And, you know, thankfully, thankfully, and I think this is the positive side of this, 90 whatever percent of what Kobe Bryant did was a positive thing that created that. And he did. I mean, look, there's, you don't have the kind of outpouring that you saw yesterday unless most of what you did in your life was something that people saw as very positive. And so, look, you have to mention the other, but I don't think we underplay also the, the fact that this guy for a generation was one of, if not the best NBA player, and so the best at what their favorite activity was. That's what we see it with artists, we see it with musicians. Everybody, Bill, everybody has that one person, that one celebrity, that one person that when they pass away or when they have passed away, it hit them. We all have. And that's we're seeing the result of that. 
Well, and I'm not one of these. I've seen some people on social media doing here of you know scoring this. Uh, well, that cancels this out, etc. No, no, it's it's all part of the, the the greater story because I do remember the heavy coverage, the extreme coverage of of the sexual assault case back in 2003. Uh, and as you recall the details in that, of course, uh, the the young lady that actually pressed charges. Uh, was outed. I mean, she she was not supposed to be named. It was ugly. Somebody it was ugly. somebody named her. Uh, her name and her face were splashed all over news media on television, newspapers, everything else. Uh, she was getting death threats from from Colby fans and Lakers fans, and uh, you know that's why she dropped it. She basically went to the prosecutors and said, "Look, I can't take this anymore. I forget about it." And and I don't know where she is right now, but I'm sure she's got her own thoughts on this day. Well, let me say one other thing too. And you know, you're a father. I'm a father. Many people listening right now are parents. It's also, it's always a challenge for me in these stories to remember that there were other people on that helicopter who will not even have, nobody's going to remember their name. No one is going to spend a half a second thinking about them. And I, I can't bring myself to believe that the loss of them is somehow less important or less traumatic to their family, to their loved ones, than the loss of Kobe Bryant is to his. And so, you know, yes, fame is, fame is an amazing thing that, that does these kind of things, but it is, it's always, whenever these things happen, and there's someone else in the plane, in Princess Diana's car, when the other guys are there, can, can anybody name the other men or the other people who were in the car with Princess Diana? Not a chance. That's fame, that's reality, that's how it works, Bill. But it doesn't lessen the fact that there were other people on there, too, that we don't even know who they are yet. That, that's been, you know, the police say, well, we've got to identify them. That's true. That, that's good policing, and that's, that's fair. But I don't think that anybody uh, two days from now is going to be able to name those people, which is unfortunate. It is. Scott, thanks as always for this. Uh, I'm sure you'll be talking with us later on, of course, on your program at 6 o'clock tonight. Thanks for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Scott Riley, of course, uh, host of the Scott Riley Show here on 900 CHML. Uh, I want to bring uh, Kate Delaney into the conversation, too, a.k.a. the Sports Princess. Uh, she's uh, covered 15 Super Bowls, 10 U.S. Opens, uh, 15 Final Fours, World Series games, a plethora of sporting events, and uh, author of a new book, too, by the way, called Deal Your Own Destiny. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could hop on today. Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me on. What are you hearing in, in the last 24 hours about this? The, 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 lots of shock, of course, pour, tributes are pouring in. But the, as we were just talking with our previous guest, with Scott Riley here, there's a, almost a, a, a war of words going on on social media right now about how Kobe should be remembered. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Bill. It, it has exploded, and it did a little bit yesterday, and some of it's really nasty because what's happening is people are looking at what happened with the um, – with the charges that ultimately he, if you remember the assault charge, um, that ultimately he ended up settling in a, in a civil case and, of course, said that there was a misunderstanding as to what happened. And now a lot of that is coming up and, and being thrown up on Twitter and, and other forms of social media. So there's an argument as to, well, what about the man himself and everybody's holding him up like he's a hero, but... What about these things that happened? And I think, um, to me, he answered that, and that was was absolutely dealt with. In, and I thought they handled that well, honestly. And now to bring that up after his 
daughter is killed in the the crash and the two other young young girls were as well i think the the timing is so poor on that but that's the world we live in and you could say well you know you examine the whole thing because social media leaves the door wide open there were those back in 2003 as you recall kate that uh, thought that was going to be the end of his career yeah and i initially thought that too i was so shocked by that because i had spoken to him several times before that and then i talked to somebody who was actually involved with the case and i didn't feel that way after he came out on the other side and the people in los angeles throughout the whole thing really did support him uh as they did right to the end obviously uh, investigations are continuing i know that the uh, uh the, the crash itself needs to be investigated uh, there were nine souls that were killed uh, yesterday not just kobe bryant we need to remember all of them uh, much more to be written about this, I guess, in the days ahead. Kate, thank you so much. Uh, again, I want to remind people about the book, uh, Deal Your Own Destiny. Uh, you can go to the uh, webpage, uh, dealyourowndestiny.com, to get some more details about that. Thanks for stepping in today. Really appreciate it, Kate. Yeah, Bill, thanks for having me. Take care. Kate Delaney, of course, uh, the sports princess, who will be writing extensively, uh, but you can be sure, about Kobe over the next little while. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting meeting at Hamilton City Hall yes, well, last week, well, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But at one particular point, of course, in light of the uh, shooting that occurred with a young seven-year-old boy, of course, who was shot in a home invasion, uh, Councillor Brad Clark had some uh, questions, and I think some very serious and legitimate questions, for Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert when he came to budget allocations and, uh, and really staffing. Curious, stumped, befuddled, dismayed, and truly disappointed that in a 12 to 15 minute budget presentation for the police department, gun violence and shootings was not mentioned once, not even once. Well, uh, the chief uh, took umbrage to a set or extent about this, and there was a back and forth going on. Uh, I want to bring Brad into the program here right now. Brad Clark, of course, city councilor for uh, the Stony Creek Mountain area, and uh, somebody who knows of what he speaks. Brad, first of all, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. Timing is everything, uh, obviously. The presentation by Chief Gerd and, and police uh, was uh, last week. Um, then, of course, we get word of this. Um, you know, I, uh, your point's well taken, and it was a question I think an awful lot of people were asking. What are we doing about this? And yeah, I, I can understand your frustration. Yeah, I, w- I was incredibly frustrated. I, I listened very intently. I was in the chair at the time, listened very intently to every word the chief said and followed the presentation verbatim. And it was incredibly shocking to me that they didn't address gun violence or the number of shootings in 2019 in any way, shape, or form. They didn't even raise it once. Especially in light of the fact that uh, of these occurrences. Now, I know that uh, some people say, well, look at the, the, that terrible thing that happened last week with the seven-year-old boy. That's only the third one of this year. Brad, we're only into the third week of the year. And, and that's a concern for me. And, and you know, I had raised this in uh, December the 6th in two, 2019 at the Emergency and Community uh, Services Committee meeting that my concern was that uh, not enough is being done, the public's not being kept up to date, and that the police keep using the terminology targeted. They're targeted. So, and, and I don't find solace in that. And, and my fear in December of 2019, and I raised it, was that these are not marksmen. marksmen. These are people who are, are strafing the sides of buildings with bullets, and eventually a bullet was, is going to go through the window and hit a child. And I said that in December. 
I repeated that in the budget, and six hours later it happened. And and we have to get a handle on the guns and gangs in our community. We had a Make Safe Task Force in February 2019. It operated for three months. They had 56 arrests, um, 200 charges, uh, and then it was quietly disbanded uh, in April of 2019. And And I just think the community deserves more. The, you know, we I think we become numb sometimes to these sorts of things. Uh, you know, it's going to happen to somebody else someplace else. And and one of those phrases that you just talked about, Brad, I think is is part of that problem, uh, a targeted shooting. And when and it wasn't just Hamilton Police that coined that. I mean, other police services have done that when shootings occur in their communities as well. And, and I get it's supposed to give us some solace, I guess, to say, don't worry, it's targeted. It's not random. You're not in really real more danger. This is bad guys shooting at bad guys. I don't think the seven-year-old kid was the target of that, but he was certainly a victim. And I'm surprised that it hasn't happened more often, because as you know, in the number of these shootings, I mean, we had pictures on, on CHTV and in the spectator of, of a Tim Hortons restaurant with bullet holes in the wall. Um, many of these situations, you see many bullets in in a wide range of areas after the shooting. So the gunmen clearly have no control, and they're not marksmen. And I don't really care if they're targeting each other. It's gunplay in our community, and it has to stop. And so I, I, I'm, I, I remain befuddled um, that the task force was eliminated, um, and they put it to their guns and gangs unit, and I think they do great work, don't get me wrong. But when we have that level of shootings in a community, I would have thought that we would have had a more concentrated effort and then I read in other Ontario papers where other municipalities have the task force and they are working really hard on these issues. And I just, I just don't understand it. I just, I just thought it was, at the very, le- at the very least, Bill, um, tone deaf to not mention 47 shootings in a budget presentation to a council. Uh, you're a father. I'm a father. And uh, you're, as a matter of fact, your son was a victim. Uh, what is about five years ago, wasn't it? That's correct. He was he was shot with a shotgun um, by an assailant who was unknown to everyone in the apartment, um, and two people were shot that day. And uh, then the vic- the assailant took his own life with the same gun. And and it was serious. I mean, it was nip and tuck there for a while. I mean, there was a lot of thoughts and prayers that were going out to you and the family, of course, for the longest time. He's he's okay now, though, isn't he? Brandon's doing very well. He had Good. four surgeries. Um, but it's still a life-altering impact. But he, lo- he lost his kidney, he lost his spleen, um, and he was an innocent. But and I'm sure you've had those discussions with your son as he was growing up, as 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 we did, as a, in our family. And and the chilling reality, and and you can ask any high school student, come across the road here to Westdale, uh, and ask anybody who wants a gun can get a gun. And that, that's that's sad, but that's the way it is. Well, and and there's a lot of talk about. Prime Minister Trudeau's proposal that municipalities be able to ban handguns. So we're talking about banning legal handguns, which right now handguns are very difficult to get legally in Canada. And 80%, and those are stats that I received from the police department, upwards of 80% of the handguns that are being used in these crimes are illegal. They're illegally imported into the country. They're smuggled in. Um, Serial numbers are filed off them. They're not legal handguns. And even if we did ban them in Hamilton, 
They may not ban them in Grimsby. They may not ban them in Niagara. They may not ban them in Haldeman. So what good is the ban going to do in Hamilton since we don't have a border around our community? What's what's going to happen here? I mean, I, I can go back generations and say, oh, boy, we'd hear about these terrible shootings and, you know, a car accident or an altercation and somebody pulls a gun out and they start firing people and say, well, thank God that doesn't go on in Canada. It does now. I mean, there's there's been a, a massive shift here in attitude, and, and uh, I don't want to think of indifference to this, Brad, but we don't seem to know exactly where to go to, to try to do something about it. Well, you look at the volume of shootings that are happening in Toronto, and in one year it was almost a daily event there was another shooting. The challenge, the, the problem that I fear is that we become desensitized to it. And in order to address gun violence, there has to be a very clear, focused effort from the police department, but there has to be a broader and more holistic approach from uh, public agencies and the broader community. Everyone needs to work together to get the guns off the streets and prevent the violence. Well, I just don't see that happening as a whole. Well, it's supposed to be a coordinated effort. And I know we've heard stories, and we've talked to the chief, different chiefs of police, of course, uh, about this in the past. And, uh, you know, there's the RCMP, there's CSIS, there's the, the border patrol agencies, control agencies, and a number of players that have to be involved in this, and local police. But uh, I, I guess the frustration from your part, and I, certainly from a number of people in the community, uh, was the fact that, the, as, as you so rightly pointed, and I mean, I'm just watching the coverage of the reporting on what happened during the budget presentation, the focus seemed to be on traffic safety, which is not unimportant by any stretch of the imagination. But when you're looking at 47 shootings last year and three more already this year, uh, you got to think that that's going to be a priority as well. And I didn't dismiss the traffic component or the speeding component, hiring of eight officers for, for traffic and, and for speed. But I have to tell you, it sent the wrong message to highlight the revenue generation of those eight officers, and we didn't even address the 47 shootings. And so we need to be aware of what we're saying to the broader community. The Police Services Board, in my opinion, has to, 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 to communicate better to the, to, to the broader community and make sure that the police chief and his proposals are consistent with what they're hearing in the broader community. Yes, speed is an issue, but 47 shootings is a huge issue also. And and it seems to be accelerating. It doesn't seem to be going backwards. It seems to be go up and down. You have a good year, you have a really bad year. Now we've had another really bad year, and in three weeks of January we've had three shootings. So that doesn't send a, a, a great message to me, right? By the way, the frustration, and I know you know this, but just to put this into the conversation, uh, police are just as frustrated by this as well. You, you talk to a number of the frontline officers, as I have, uh, and and they'll give you their stories and how frustrating they are uh, about what's going on. First of all, the flow of weapons that's coming into this community, and you know, I, I know it's every community, but let's talk about this because this is where you and I and our families live, uh, and they're concerned about that. Uh, they're also concerned, and I saw Deputy Chief Bergen uh, on, in uh, the news the other day talking about this, standing out in front of the home where the, the seven-year-old was shot, and saying, look, at, we, we can't do our job without public help here, too. You know, Every time they go knocking on doors, nobody saw anything, nobody heard anything. And I can understand people be intimidated, et cetera, but, I mean, you know, we, we've got to play a part in this as well. Well, And, the, and there's a fear in the, in the community that if they speak to the police, they're going to be called in to testify, and then there's going to be retribution to them from the gangs. And that 
It may not be the case. By sharing information with the police, they're able to investigate and then find the, the, the offender and deal with the offender. And, and many of those witnesses may never be called to testify because of other things that come out because of search warrants, etc. But they can't do that work without the public cooperating with them. And that is a key component, absolutely. And the only other point that I, I need to make, is I've heard from a few residents, well, why don't you direct the police to do this work? City Council, by law, under the, the Ontario Police Services Act, as you know, Bill, City Council cannot direct the police to do anything. No, and that's the and that's a point we're going to make as we get into the budget deliberations and starting to work on this sort of stuff too. Uh, you can talk about budgets, but you cannot, as a city council, as an elected official, uh, tell the police where to go, what squads to organize, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, the police services board uh, should be more active in this, I would think. And they are the overseer, and and I I think they have to be the overseer and. And it frustrates me to see some of the citizen members be cheerleaders for the police rather than overseeing the police. Their role is a very serious role, and they have to take it very seriously and not just accept whatever the police chief is saying. They have to ask the hard questions, the difficult questions. In the budget deliberations, it was two city councillors that pushed back on the amount of money that was being proposed in the budget, and and the provincial appointees seem to be fine with everything because the chief has recommended it. That's not the role of the police service board to just accept whatever the police chief says. They're supposed to be asking the difficult, hard questions and holding them to account. Where's this going to go, Brad? I mean, if we're going to go on that line and say, okay, the police services board has to, to step up here, uh, there are elected members, certainly. Of course, Mayor Eisenberg is the, the chair of the police services board, and, and there are other elected officials on there. Do you send a message to them? Do you make a request to them? that Do you want the chief to go back and, and rework this budget and, and maybe uh, a reevaluation of some of the priorities here? The best that city council can do is ask the questions and make the suggestions and encourage further deliberation. We can vote down the entire budget, but we can't vote down the budget based on one component of what they're proposing. So we can't direct them to spend more money on gangs and guns. We, we don't have that authority. We can say no to the overall budget, and then we go into a hearing process, which is, which is very challenging in itself. I'm simply trying to make the point to the police that there are commu- there's a community out there that is really hurting. There are families that are getting hurt. There are innocent people. Um, I, I think of Mr. Johnson, who, who was mistaken identity, and he was gunned down as he was getting in his car in the early morning to go to work. There is a father... A husband, he's gone. What a tragedy to our community. And it's because of the guns and gangs that these things are happening, that innocent people are getting shot, and it's going to continue unless we actually have a holistic, uh, mobilized, focused attention to this issue. And it's not just a, a North End issue. I mean, I know some people have characterized and said, well, these are some of the challenged neighborhoods. This is happening in every neighborhood, in every community. Uh, yours, Stony Creek, I mean, even in Ancaster, old sleepy, quiet Ancaster, was about a year ago. There was a gun battle around the corner at a gas station uh, just off Gulf Links Road. And I figured, what, what's coming on here? And it's, you don't know right now, and that's, that's the frightening part. Yeah, there's, there's no borders to the guns and gangs. They don't stay in one community and, oh, we've, we can't cross that line. Uh, they come from Toronto, they come from other communities, they come into our community, they've got a beef with someone over whatever the case is, and they, they, they solve that beef with guns. 
and and the challenge that we have is that there are innocent lives at risk every single time there is a targeted shooting. Well, it's going to be part of the debate, of course, uh, when the Commons resumes today. And and I know that we've had this discussion in the past, Brad, and you've seen this both as a provincial member and, of course, as a municipal politician. And there are going to be those, once again, you'll hear these voices, well, we need tougher sentences, which I don't think is a deterrent, by the way. You know, if you an extra five years, if you commit a crime with a gun, uh, these guys don't think they're going to get caught. So that's really inconsequential to them. They don't care one way or another about the sentencing. If we could stem the tide of illegally imported guns across the border, which means a federal investment into our border control, then we would be having a much greater impact on the gun violence than municipalities across the country. And so the feds have a role to play. The province have a role to play and municipalities. Where where are you now with the police and, and with Chief Gert on this? I mean, I'm just going by the reporting that Ken Mann gave us about the the, the, the interaction between you and the chief the other day. Uh, any assurance that, that they're going to look into this, or is this just is it left now? Is it just going to be the way it is? At the moment, the chief has taken the position that um, they have the proper resources in place and they can handle it with frontline officers. And yet, ironically, in the same breath, he indicated that if they needed, if they wanted to put the Make Safe Task Force back in, they would need 12 officers dedicated to that that unit. Um, I, I just, if they're hiring eight for traffic, then doesn't that free up eight somewhere else that they could use for a task force? I'm just asking the questions. I'm not a police officer. I'm not the police chief. But I'm raising these concerns as an elected official because I'm hearing it from my residents. And you're limited as to what you can say and what you can do as a city councillor. But as and, we mentioned... I'm doing it in the most respectful and civil way I can, Bill. You know me. I, I'm not accusatory. I'm bringing the facts out as I understand them to have that conversation. Are you hoping or maybe even expecting that uh, your council colleagues on the police services board are going to pick up the ball here? I would hope that the police department and the police service board acknowledge that, that, that there was a mistake made in not bringing it forward in the budget for discussion and, and, and demonstrate to the public exactly what they are doing and where the new resources can be put in place to help with the guns and gangs unit. Yeah. We just can't put all of our eggs in one basket with speeding. And, and the argument that they find guns in traffic stops is a bit of a misnomer because that's a very, very rare situation. Yeah, well, it's happened from time to time, but not with any degree of regularity. You're absolutely right. Uh, Important next steps, because I'd like to think that uh, this isn't going to happen again, but we know that it is at some time, and hopefully not not too distant. Uh, And and we need to be prepared. I think we need to take a different strategy, and we'll uh, see what our police services board is going to do and how they're going to respond to this. Members in the public, if if they're aware of something or if they know something, they need to know that they can call Crime Stoppers anonymously and give the tip. They don't have to be afraid that there's going to be retribution. They can give the tip anonymously. It gets to the police. That tip enables the police to exercise search warrants, and they can find the offenders. So there are ways around the system. We don't need to be afraid in our community. We need to take our community back and speak up in order to ensure that the ones that are doing the shooting are put away. City Council Brad Clark. Brad, thanks. We'll uh, see how this is going to shape up in the next couple of days. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, and to, to his point, and Chief Gert has mentioned this many times, uh, Deputy Chief Bergen mentioned this the other day, 
it sounds a little catchy phrase, but it's it's a big help. If you see something, say something. And you can do it anonymously through Crime Stoppers. They don't have call display or any of that stuff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Public transit. This, this is a, a key element of, of just about every budget discussion in every city right across the world, really, and, and certainly is in this city. Uh, with the basic question, and somebody would actually probably consider this almost a rhetorical question, how do we get more people to use public transit? Uh, there is not one answer to that. But uh, the study that was done recently by McMaster University, I think, is going to shed some light on exactly where we are and what we need to do. Uh, Debbie Dalibaldo is with us. She is the head of the uh, Hamilton Street Railway, who is uh, with us here in studio. Uh, and also is uh, Motaz Mohammed, who is a professor at McGrath University, uh, who, of course, are responsible for this. First of all, guys, thanks for coming in. Great to have you here today. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. Deb, answer the question. What do you do? Uh, 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 that rhetorical question that doesn't have one answer, give me one answer. What do you need to do to get people on the bus? So, uh, very simply, just provide frequent, reliable service. That does it? Well, that's what customers have wanted. Uh, you know, I've been in the industry for approximately 32 years, and that has been the constant uh, um, um, requirement uh, from a customer perspective of what they are looking to make transit a, a first choice for them. So you want to make it affordable, and you want to make it reliable. Uh, but that's not easy, in, given the constraints of just about every city council budget is, is going through these days. Um, so that's absolutely correct, especially from an operating perspective. Uh, you know, we have lots of uh, support for infrastructure and for building and buying buses, but uh, we also have to the requirement that we need a human being in that seat to drive those vehicles, and there's a cost associated with that. And, uh, you know, that is always a struggle for each municipality in order to have the financing to be able to do that. So it is, uh, it's uh, uh, certainly a challenge. Okay, so to find those answers, you, you've got to bear your soul and basically go to your customers or potential customers say, how are we doing and what do we need to do to make it even better for you? Uh, that, that can be a, a daunting experience. Uh, and, and, of course, you, en- you enlisted the folks at McMaster University, Motaz and, and uh, the staff. Uh, talk to us about that process, What you went, how, how you went about doing that survey. So basically we have uh, uh, different folds of the, of the same survey. So we're collecting a bunch of information related to travel behavior, socioeconomic and demographic variables. Uh, we gave them uh, some alternatives to choose from. It's called a discrete uh, uh, experiment, uh, discrete choice model, a design experiment method. And basically what we wanted to, to understand is basically looking into the constraints and understanding how we can quantify this how we can quantify the best service desired by the population being current HSR users or potential HSR users, and uh, what's the monetary value associated with this. And based on the feedback we received from the customers, we are basically going on redesigning or reconfiguring uh, the system in a way to bridge this gap between what they desire and what the service should look like. After we do this exercise, we can arrive at a monetary value saying, okay, this system desired by the population will cost this amount of money. And that's usually the uh, stumbling block. As soon as you see that dollar sign and the zeros behind it, uh, but it's it's if you want better transit, there's, as as we've said uh, on this program, uh, there's a price to pay and a, a financial price that has to be paid, or you're just not going to get a product that's going to be desirable. That's correct. And uh, back in 2015, council uh, endorsed the 10-year local transit strategy, which was a financial plan 
to start moving year over year on how to start increasing the investments in transit in order to get to that point where we have that frequent and reliable service. So certainly a commitment by council to continue the, to start with the investments and you know year after year the continued uh, commitment from council to invest in transit so that we can get to, to the state where we have a product that customers are going to choose to use um, even, and uh, of course to uh, address the concerns of our current customers as well. So this isn't just about getting more people on the bus, it's also looking at our current customers and what we need to do to, to maintain them and to improve that customer experience for them. So as you look through some of the data from uh, the, all the stuff that, uh, that Motaz and, and his staff have uh, assembled here, any, any surprises? Um, uh, n- not really. Um, you know, everything is consistent around wanting frequent and reliable service. Uh, the difference, uh, you know, obviously was from the perspective of current customers, what um, th- they spoke to us more about, you know, while they're on the bus, what they would see as improving their experience. And what was important to our current customers wasn't necessarily the tipping point for somebody to actually say, you know what, I'm going to get out of my car and start using transit. But the the main uh, focus on both uh, streams was, again, at that frequent reliable services is what is going to um, get people out of their cars in order to kind of replicate what they're experiencing right now as they're driving, that same level of service. But that kind of morphs into the carrot and stick approach here, doesn't it? Because uh, the f- pushback I hear anytime we talk about public transit, about LRT or an, an, an rapid ready reports or anything like this, is is invariably don't tell me that I have to take it. Uh, in other words, I, I, I and, and I'll give you a quick story. There's a former staffer who's no longer working for the city uh, that sat right there in that chair. This is a number of years ago, and said, "My job is to force you to leave your car at home." and to take the bus. And I said, nobody's going to force me or anybody else to do anything. I said, all you're going to do is make people resentful. I said, if you make it affordable and convenient, they'll come. Mm-hmm. Y- you can't use the stick. You need to use the carrot. Uh, and, and you're right on with that. For years, it's always been about, oh, we're going to get everybody out of their cars and onto public transit. Um, and and really, you know, trying to get everybody out of their vehicles, you have to give them a level of service that would be somewhat similar or replicate with the experience they have in their car. So really important from the perspective of looking at, you know, I always say, you know, if you drive five days a week, you know, if you can take transit one day a week, um, and we can provide a service that's going to get you to where you're going, where you would typically drive, um, then, you know, come on and try transit for that one day. You get on transit that one day and you find that it's reliable, um, you know, your, ex- your experience has been a, a great experience, then maybe that one day might then become two days. But without having a design of a system that is taking people where they want to go, um, it, that would be next to impossible because why would I get out of my car to get on a on a, a public transit vehicle that potentially where I could get to maybe in half an hour is going to take me in excess of that because people's time is, is, is valuable. Sure. So we have to make sure that the product that we're providing is what the customers want. At the end of the day, we are in the customer service business. Yeah. I, I will pick up from here and I think the, <clears throat> the word product is, is uh, amazing because at the end of the day you have a discrete market share and you would like to tap in into this market share and offering the best product that will be competitive not only with the core but will be competitive with the uh, with with the core and with other right sourcing uh applications like the like of uh, uh uber or Le- lyft or whatever so basically you're providing a service to the customer 
And in a sense, you need to build your service based on customer demands and mm-hmm. needs. So this is how you, you, you provide more competitive service and appeal for more customers. And, and uh, just looking at some of the responses you got here uh, in, in the survey, uh, Motaz, and uh, they're looking at the whole package here, aren't they? It's not just, hey, the experience while I'm on the bus. Yeah. Uh, a lot of concerns, a lot of comments about bus stops, bus shelters. Uh, yeah. that, that's part of the, the equation here too, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, honestly, a couple of uh, very clear and very positive signs coming from the survey. Uh, one of them is looking into the, the population in Hamilton, uh, there is no transit stigma. This is how we phrase uh, we phrase it in the literature, but people uh, people's attitude toward transit is positive. Uh, they demanding uh, specific tweaks into the infrastructure similar to having uh, shelters or protection from the elements at bus stops, having uh, reduced waiting time, more frequent buses, especially at we- weekend and holidays. Uh, they they value the spread or the density of the of, of HSR stops. They feel the walking time is reasonable. It's good, and they are uh, happy with this. So we we get a lot of information out of the survey, and the survey was designed in a way to pull information from many sources. It's not only asking one question to get one answer. We ask the same question maybe in four or five different ways. To, to make sure that our uh, evidence coming from the survey are telling us a very uh, correct story and it's not biased. How deep do you dive into this stuff, Debbie, to, to make a determination as to how you can apply this data t- to improve the service? So, uh, are they talking about routes, uh, where the buses are going? As Morte said, the, the, where bus stops are? What do the shelters look like? Are they comfortable? Uh, there's a lot here to, to unpack to try to get a picture here. So it was really crucial with the survey uh, to what Motaz is saying is really listening to what the customers and and the residents of Hamilton are telling us. So when you ask how deep we're going to dive, we're going to dive in as as deep as we can go, especially given all the valuable information that our customers told us. So we had almost 6,000 people complete the survey. And within that uh, survey was an opportunity to provide comments. We got over 3,000 comments from people and not just, geez, you know, I really like the service or this is what you can improve. Detailed responses on, you know, how to make it better. So we're certainly going to use that as the basis of everything that we do moving forward. Uh, because I can't stress again, we're in the customer service business. So, you know, we need to understand what our customers want. We need to understand where they're going so that they can make transit their first choice. So um, uh, digging as deep as we can, Bill. There's so much to, to pull from here, too. I mentioned the Rapid Ready Report the, uh, just a couple of minutes ago and the 710 pages of report, and I, I'm told that some councillors actually even read it. But uh, th- there's that. You've got, the, as you mentioned, the 10-year transit plan. There's the BLAST network that's out there. There's, there's an awful lot of coordination here uh, that I guess is going to, at one point or another, address just about everything that we're talking about here today. But it seems as if there's a common goal among all of those reports, and I'm sure you've got them all stacked up on your desk right now, and it's probably your, your, your number one reading job right now is to go through these things. Uh, the goal here is really just increased ridership. I mean, that's really what this comes down to, isn't it? Um, in, in its simplest form, absolutely, yeah. is to increase ridership. And then we can talk about all the intrinsic benefits that that transit provides to a community. So certainly not, you know, it's not just about you know, increasing ridership. It's all the other benefits that transit does bring to a community from city building, from social equity, um, from everything else that, you know, that a, a really robust system will provide you. And that's what our what our goal is. And, and with that in mind, obviously, uh, you have to develop these strategies. Uh, you, 
I'm not going to get political with you here. That's that, that's up to the elected officials as to where the service is going to go, how they're going to pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. So that all that stuff about uh, about area rating and everything that's that's not on your desk right now. Let those guys handle that uh, and make that determination. But with that in mind, and with what you've seen with these results here from uh, all the work that Motaz has done here. Uh, evaluate it. Where are we? Are you, are you comfortable with the progress that we're making? It's incremental. I know you'd like to go a lot faster and have better results. So it, it, it's never going to be perfect, but are we moving in the right direction at a, at a, at a decent pace? So absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we've seen now two years in a row that our ridership has increased, which is, which is a good sign based on the current design of the system. Um, but certainly, you know, to really take it to the next level, that, that was, you know, the the, the beginning discussion around, you know, well, what does the system look like? Are we going where where our customers need us to go? You know, keeping in mind, you know, the, the design of the system, you know, HSR has been around in, uh, since for 147 years. And, and the system, you know, originally was designed to meet the needs of the way the people in the city were moving. And then through the years, you know, was just built on. And, and quite honestly, you know, we've changed. Uh, you know, there's more expansion on the mountain. People are, are, are going to different locations. Not everybody wants to come right down to, to downtown in every trip that they're taking. So really looking at it from a, a, a design perspective. You know, I liken it to, you know, when you build your house, you need a really good, strong foundation before you start putting on the, the subsequent floor. So this is what, uh, what the survey is giving us, and this is what we're working with McMaster on to get that solid foundation so that we can build a system not just for today, but for the future and moving forward. And with that in mind, uh, the fact that 56% actually of the respondents anyway seem to be happy with the service, that kind of indicates yeah. we're going in the right direction. Yeah, I think, uh, referring to my comment uh, earlier, that, that there is a Positive trends at attitude in Hamilton, uh, which is like unlikely in many places. I was uh, at the TRB, the Transportation Search Board annual meeting in Washington D.C., and one of the presenters like showed uh, uh, some re- recent statistics showing that the o- almost all services, all bus services across North America are declining in ridership. So HSR and Two years in a row, the ridership is increasing. This is a very positive sign. And this also attributed to Hamiltonians that they are willing to use the service, provided that we listen to them and we get their feedback and we accommodate uh, their desires accordingly. It's a balancing act, though, isn't it? I mean, we've just talked about the cost of putting a, a decent system together, but affordability uh, for the for the, the riders has to be an element to that, too, and a big part of it. Oh, absolutely. You don't want to price yourself out of your market. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, certainly is, is something that we, uh, uh, you know, have to be very uh, cognizant of as well, so that it is a, a value add and, and, and people feel that they're getting value for the money as well. Uh, anybody who wants to have a look at this, uh, is it on the city website? It, it is. And uh, we also have a uh, website. It's myhsr.hamilton.ca. That is our engagement platform that uh, anybody who participated in the survey uh, for updates on where we are with the project and and anybody interested in in joining in the conversation, uh, uh, you know, to that website and uh, all our information and how we're uh, progressing through the project will be posted there. Motaz, Debbie, thank you both for coming in here and for the great work that you're doing. And uh, we'll stay in touch as this evolves over the next little while. Thank you very much for the opportunity. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.